Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Welcome to another episode of Clear Choices. Excited to have you here today. Before we get started with today's guest, I wanted to make you aware of something that I've been promoting on my website and and want to start bringing to the actual recordings of my show. And that is that I have started providing coaching services for people. So these are services related to life coaching, business coaching scenarios, using my my years in the real estate business as a uh, backdrop for that. Um, I've been a coach in that space for about 15 years and have found some success and crossover with people, not just in the real estate space, but um, working on building businesses, working on setting goals, being held accountable, changing uh, direction in certain parts of their life. So if you want to learn more about what I do and how it might be relevant to you, you can either go to the clearchoices.live website or email me directly at rob at robeigner.com. That's R-O-B at R-O-B-A-I-G-N-E-R.com. Be happy to talk to you a little bit more about what we do. Okay, so to today's guest, Mary Eberly. Uh, She lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and she is the founder of a company called DNA Hunters. Uh, Formerly a patent attorney, she's been working in the DNA space for many years. And this industry brings to light uh, a lot of interesting choices that people have to make uh, regarding these findings. So first of all, Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. So, So tell me, first of all, how how did you go from you know your your original line of work to getting into the DNA space and starting your own company uh, around DNA research? Well, actually, I started out before law school um, by working ten years in a DNA research lab, and I've always loved DNA and genetics. I spent that time in the lab, and then I decided to go to law school, and that might seem a little odd but I was able to bring my DNA work forward into my law practice. As a biotech patent attorney, I worked on inventions that were scientific. For example, fluorescent proteins, probiotics for farm animals, and things like that. Interesting. And uh, how long have you had your, your, your business, DNA Hunters? Since 2015. Okay. And, and what is the primary service that you provide? What would you say is the, the most common thing that people call you for? I find people's birth parents. So adoptees and other people with unknown parents, sometimes it's grandparents, call me to help them find those missing relatives. Got it. And, 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 and would, you, would you say that there's been some... Uh, surprising outcomes uh, for you and or the client uh, in those searches? Definitely. Definitely. And would you say that when you're going through this process with something, with someone, you know, there has to be, I'm assuming, a, 
a dual role that you play because on the one hand you're you're dealing with data and the science of dna and then the other hand you're dealing with this human element and their reaction and response to the findings so that's those are two very different skill sets right right and i don't have any formal training like in counseling um, of course as an attorney you're counseling your clients but it's it was never about things so you know close to the heart you know it was can i get a patent on the you know beer sipping hat <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me you did that that's you is that you are you the beer sipping hat person <laughs> that's right wow i'm 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 honored and disappointed at the same time i'm just kidding i'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So yeah, it's a little bit of a different, uh, a little bit of a different dynamic than dealing with patent. Right. So Mary, as we were preparing for today's call, you had mentioned that there were a number of incidences that you were aware of, not involved with, but aware of, that uh, involved DNA testing and people discovering uh, family members that had uh, been separated through the Holocaust. Can you elaborate on that? Right. There was a story last week from MyHeritage, and that is a genealogy company that recently started offering DNA testing. And it was about survivor, the, the daughter of a woman who was in a concentration camp. And when she was placed in the camp, she had a two-year-old daughter. And she was, of course, separated from that daughter. And when she got out of the concentration camp, she went back to look for her but she never found her mm -hmm. and she went on to get married and have another daughter on her deathbed. She made the daughter promise that she would continue her search for this other daughter. Mm -hmm. So it would be her older sister. And the woman did a DNA test and in her match list was someone who was the daughter of this missing sister. Mm -hmm. And they have Skyped with each other and um, you know, talked on the phone and you know, it's just been this incredible finding through DNA that, you know, that the first daughter survived. She actually was adopted by a family in Israel, which is why when the mom went back to look for her, she couldn't, you know, she wasn't there. She wasn't in Germany anymore. How many years had passed, Mary, from from the first point of separation to the first time they Skyped or knew of each other's existence? I would estimate that it was 80. Does, does that make sense? The 1940s? Yeah, so the, 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 the end of the war was 75 years ago. So basically this, the, the finding just occurred. So we're talking 70 to 75 years. Right, exactly. Wow, wow. How would you describe uh, you know, what you and you know, the, the other uh, people who were involved in this, what was the experience like for, for this family uh, kind of reuniting? These situations are oftentimes bittersweet. You know, the person's mom who was in the concentration camp, she was gone. She, um, her daughter was deceased also. So the, you know, the two-year-old who was separated from her was gone. And now you've got these living descendants who, you know, they see each other's faces and they see their mom or they see their sister. and um, you know, that's such an amazing thing. And yet, you know, they're thinking, oh, I wish mom would have been here to see this. Yeah. And, and also so much time has passed, I would guess, 
so much time has passed that their and their lives are on such divergent paths that it, it it must feel surreal to try to connect with someone like that who you know is connected to you through DNA, but not really connected to you in any other way. Because you know, one's in Israel, one's in a different part of the world. They're they just have nothing in common, I would guess. But right. Although sometimes it's pretty amazing because people do have things in common. Sure. For example, they both play the piano or they both studied the same thing. You know, it's I have seen really interesting situations where when the birth parent or the half sister is found, there are all of these similarities. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm just it just triggered a, a, a recent memory of mine, and that is there's a gentleman I know here in Los Angeles who is um, half Irish Catholic and half Hungarian, and uh, you know he's. 50 years old approximately and his entire life he just thought he was Irish Catholic and uh, several I don't know maybe a year ago or so he was contacted by someone in England who says I think I'm your relative long story short DNA testing uh, and they find out that he's half Jewish and you know he has and he has this whole side of this family that he never knew about that's related to his now deceased father so he's kind of relearning his heritage literally Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that so that those two stories, the the one I just shared and the one you brought up about this Holocaust, you know, family kind of reuniting, brings up an interesting question. Uh, obviously, there's there's lots of joy and 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 knowledge, self knowledge that people can gain uh, from these kind of matches. What what are some of the dilemmas you see uh, or that you find in your work where there's a little bit more of a difficult choice? Uh, in terms of how you present data or what's found with the data or where, you know, you, if it were you, you might advise someone, I don't know if I would go down this path for whatever reason. Are you faced with those kind of dilemmas and choices? There are definitely dilemmas. And those include when we're reaching out to a birth family, the degree of honesty that you want to include in that letter. Um, so typically I suggest people write a letter, they explain who they are, they include photographs of themselves, and they say, I'm on this DNA journey, I'm looking for my birth parent, this is what I have found so far, and would you be willing to help me? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we know that the person that's being reached out to is a pretty close relative. And how much of that to disclose is debatable. And in part, there's some uncertainty, and that's why we're reaching out, because ultimately we would like that person to do a DNA test or at least have a really good conversation with us about their parent or their uncle or you know whoever is the relevant person. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't want to scare them. And there is definitely that dose of uncertainty. So then the dilemma is like, do we, you know, how much do we disclose? Yeah. And so uh, what, what would be an example or, uh, or an overview of kind of like how you have maybe filtered a message? I mean, not, I, I know that you've, you're, you're always completely honest, but like where give an example of maybe where you're like, Oh, I have to, I have to filter some of this information and, and let the customer make a, a choice around this. Uh, so is there an example of that? Right. 
Right. So, and you're right that it's the customer's choice. One example would be we might know that somebody is either a first cousin or a half sibling, and we're getting, you know, we're getting close and close, closer to the answer. And do we say that or do we say, it looks like you're a relative? And one of the things that can happen if it turns out they are a half sibling is they might be angry and feel like they were misled and and tricked into helping. And while the vast majority of people are happy to find a half sibling, there are also people who are not happy about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have an image of their parent. Their parent would have never generated another baby and they don't want their world rocked. Yeah. So it, you know, there are lots of choices and lots of dilemmas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally imagine that. You had mentioned uh, also when we were preparing that there's been some interesting um, cases that you found when smaller communities of people uh, tend to, you know, marry within uh, their, their, you know, like Ashkenazi Jews, for example, uh, or, and you mentioned also Cajuns uh, as an example, where they tend to marry within their, their, their group. What are some of the challenges with that from a DNA perspective? It's really challenging. And that's because when we look at DNA results, we are looking at how much DNA is shared with a match. And once we know how much DNA is shared, then we know what the possible relationships are to that match and also the probability of those relationships. So let's say that a match shares 200 centimorgans, and centimorgans is a measurement of DNA. And typically, that would equate to a second cousin. However, in communities where they have married within the community, and like you said, Ashkenazi Jews, Cajuns, um, island communities, intermarry almost exclusively within their own community. Mm -hmm. And what that results in is that you can be related to a match on multiple lines. So maybe on your mom's side, you're a third cousin on one line and a fourth cousin on another line. And on your dad's side, you're fourth cousins and fifth cousins. All of those relationships produce a piece of DNA from that relationship. Mm -hmm. And now you're adding together all these small pieces that add up to 200 and they look like your second cousins. But in fact, you have all of these different relationships. And what does that do to someone's, you know, whether it's health concerns or, you know, what, what does that do to a person? Okay. So one, one thing is it makes it really hard for us to look at and figure out what exactly is going on. What are the relationships? But also for health situations, oftentimes we will see recessive diseases. Mm-hmm. So things where it requires the mutation to be carried by the mom and by the dad, you're just mathematically going to have that situation happen more often when people are interrelated. And I want to make sure I understand something. Um, It doesn't sound like these people are knowingly marrying a relative. It, It sounds like because they're in a smaller community that there's, there's, DNA or familial connection, but not through the direct lines where we would think of like, hey, someone married their cousin. It's different than that. Is that, is that correct? I would say people know. People know that, you know, 
I, I actually, I, I spoke at a conference in Albuquerque mm -hmm. and there's a lot of this in Albuquerque where um, there were only so many Spanish soldiers who came in. They came in predominantly without wives. So they married native women. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have this really tiny number of people who generated, you know, a whole present day community mm -hmm. and, People when they when they meet each other and I witnessed this firsthand. They said, "Hey, where are you from?" And then they said the the little town they're from. And then the person, the first person, would say, "Hey, my uncle so and so lives there." And then the the second person would say, "Oh, he's my third cousin." You know, so so like they know this exists. You know, maybe they don't have the whole pedigree out there, mm -hmm. but you know, it's not like oh, I I married my first cousin or my second cousin. It, which actually is acceptable in a lot of religions and a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the Western world that has this really big issue with these close marriages. But does it cause, does that cause, you know, the, the, the stereotypical concerns that people would have about what they would call like inbreeding or whatever, like, does that cause significant health risks? In communities that intermarry, there are definitely higher risks of certain diseases. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if you have a single incident of a union of a father, daughter or siblings, you know, that's different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the stigma around this topic. In this country, there is a strong stigma attached to having your parents be related mm -hmm. and closely related. And that is fairly unique to our country because there are religions and communities and countries where people marry close relatives to preserve the wealth, to preserve the family lines and so on. And I want to support people who find out and obviously through no fault of their own, that they are the product of a close relationship. I think that's that's that goes right to the core of what the show's about, which is, you know, these these choices that we're all forced to make in our lives and our businesses. And that's, you know, a, that's an admirable choice that you're making. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Switching gears a little bit. You, uh, we had talked a little bit about um, a, a black market baby culture, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you have also uh, learned about uh, that that's very related to this topic of DNA. So to talk to us a little bit about that. I have a client who was sold to his parents in 1949. It was in Montreal and it was through a black market baby ring. And at the time you could only adopt within your own religion. His parents who adopted him were Jewish and there were very few Jewish babies available for adoption. In contrast, there were many French Canadian babies born to Catholic women and girls. Some lawyers and doctors set up this black market baby ring where they took advantage of this number of Catholic babies and they sold them to the Jewish parents. Mm -hmm. And they had a sliding scale. So if you were wealthy, they charged you more. Apparently some people paid like $10,000 back in the 1950s or 1940s. So, so my client learned once his parents were gone, he was about 35, 
he learned that he was adopted. And then one of his cousins told him a little bit of the story about how his parents had purchased him. And he asked me to help him find his birth father. And interestingly, you know, we expected him to be French Canadian because of that was the main type of baby that was sold in this black market ring. But he's Ukrainian Orthodox, mm-hmm. which is related to Catholicism. It's kind of morphs onto Greek Orthodox and the other Orthodox churches. And they, they came into the United States. Uh, this group came in predominantly in the late 1800s. There was another wave of Ukrainians who came in during World War II. And, and what was this like uh, for your client to find, find this information out? Well, he was shocked. You know, he had done, he had grown up as a Jewish person. You know, he was bar mitzvahed. That's the correct derivation of that term. It, it is. Good job. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he talked about going to a summer camp where he learned like canasta. And uh, he, he actually was on the news in Canada. So his story was, you can find it on YouTube. The Canadian TV network interviewed him. And he thought that his birth mother had a certain name in the, on the TV show. He says it. So I'll, I'll repeat it, which is Mary Boyko. And Boyko, if you look that up, it's a dead giveaway that that's Ukrainian, right? If, if his parents were French Canadians, it would be like Pierre and Marie, you know, very different names. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I have worked on his DNA results since January. So that's about six months. And it's very difficult because of that Ukrainian aspect of it. So when we're doing this work, we're looking at the matches and we're building their trees back to common ancestors within those matches. And in this case, when I'm building those trees back, I'm hitting a brick wall, you know, when they come into the the US or Canada. You know, sometimes I've got immigration papers that say we came from this town and this country. This was also known as Galicia mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe. So sometimes it was Poland, sometimes it was Ukraine, sometimes it was Galicia, sometimes it was just the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, so very, very difficult from that perspective. And then the names have also morphed. So he's got some Adams matches who also were Adamovich and then the Polish spelling of Adamovich and the Ukrainian spelling. And like just putting all those pieces together has been quite challenging. So you're, you're truly a, a detective in a lot of these uh, scenarios. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, s- speaking of that, if I can shift gears once again, um, I know there's, a lot of TV shows uh, related somehow to DNA. Um, I, I checked before we started recording and there was like 11 shows on various channels. Are there any that you gravitate towards or relate to or find interesting yourself? There is the brand new TV show on ABC and it's called The Genetic Detective. Mm-hmm. And it goes through different cases that CC Moore worked on. Cece is the person who helped invent this whole methodology for 
finding birth parents of adoptees. So she spent a long time working and helping adoptees find their birth parents. And then people realized that that same method could be used to find suspects in oftentimes cold cases, but also in active cases. So she's putting that method to use in identifying suspects. Interesting. And, and when you, when you see a show like that, do you, uh, does, does the entertainment industry tend to, you know, exaggerate it or do you kind of look at it and go, wow, that's interesting. Yes, I do that. I've learned from that. You know, this is true to, true to what's happening out in the real world of, of the DNA circle. In terms of the DNA, it's definitely what we do, you know, what I do. Um, you know, I think sometimes it gives people the feeling that, well, it's so easy right? Like Cece just in one hour, she solved this case or in two hours, she solved this case. And the show's taped over six weeks (laughs) or whatever. Right. 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 And she has a team, you know, she talks about her team and um, you know, it's funny because I think more people call me because they realize you can use DNA to find missing relatives. But at the same time, I think, you know, some of my clients are like, well, you know, like, I watched the show last night and just wondering, how are you coming on my project? <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of like those house building shows where, you know, move that bus, you know, the houses, they rebuild a house from, you know, the ground up in, in a whole, in just an hour. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's the same kind of thing. So, um, so I want to ask a question, not necessarily of your work, but of your personal experience of the work. So, you know, you, you, you were on a traditional path, you know, meaning you were a researcher and you were an attorney and, and then you started your own business and, and, and this is the business. How do you feel about that choice you've made? Like what, what have you learned? How have you grown uh, by the choice you made to follow this particular path? This path that I'm on is uh, the most rewarding and satisfying and interesting career choice that I have made. You know, I love being in the lab, but I, I was there for 10 years and I had done everything I could do. And then I took that analytical thinking forward into my law practice and I was there for 13 years. And during the majority of those 13 years, I was trying to figure out what do I do next? Mm-hmm. That's most lawyers that I find. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and I had left my law practice and it was actually Cece, whom I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was on a, another TV show called Finding Your Roots. And that's what sparked my interest in genetic genealogy. Mm-hmm. which is what we call this field mm-hmm. of combining DNA with genealogy. And I just didn't realize that it existed. It had been around a couple of years. And I just decided when I saw her on the TV show, that's what I'm going to do. And I went online and I found the next class that she was teaching, which was the following spring in Dallas. And I signed up. It was an advanced DNA class. you know, And I just thought, like I, I, I know DNA. I've developed DNA tests. I know about inheritance. I'm gonna just go for it, and like I have not looked back. And know, so you've been, you've been you've been really satisfied in terms of the impact you're having on your clients. Your the the I I would imagine 
you know, you're constantly learning, you know, new, new histories, new things, you know, trying to connect dots. It's, it's gotta be uh, continually interesting. Right. Right. Like I never liked history as a student, but now it's fascinating. You know, like I was saying the whole Eastern European, uh, that whole, the history of that, what happened, you know, I have to understand that because I need that background to understand what I'm looking at and, and to understand, for example, why I can't get back any further. And I actually joined a Ukrainian genealogy group on Facebook for that case, you know, and to learn about how those religions are interrelated because I had to make sense of, you know, if I find a record when I'm building a tree of a match and it's a record from the Greek Orthodox church, do I just throw that out or do I, bring in the fact that Greek Orthodox and Ukrainian Orthodox overlap, Mm -hmm. you know, and let's say when people first came from the Ukraine into Canada, a lot of them attended Greek Orthodox churches because that's what there were. You know, you, you just really have to be considering all these factors. And there's probably, and probably some people are really charged by that because it's not the, necessarily the history they want told or, you know, they, they maybe are now disassociated from one of those churches or organizations or, you know, that's not the story they want to be telling. That's interesting. Obviously, besides connecting with family, one of the things that, that DNA is most commonly known for in terms of its usage uh, in the, in the, in our day-to-day world is in the, in the, in the crime and police related sectors of our, 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 our society. What are you seeing uh, in, in that space that is both obviously positive because I'm sure it's solving crimes uh, or absolving people of crimes that they were wrongly accused for, but also I'm assuming that there are some dilemmas and challenges in, in that space as well. Can you comment on that? You're right. You're right. The use by law enforcement of our genealogical databases uh, has divided our community you know so the majority of people support it there are people who don't support it and there have been super nasty fights over it and people aren't speaking to each other Um, so it has greatly impacted the community that I belong to it also has impacted asking people to test so for example if we ask somebody to test at family tree DNA we need to let them know that law enforcement can look at their results, meaning the law enforcement sample can be matched to them unless they opt out of that. And then there's another website where everyone is opted out, but very recently a forensic company that's for profit bought this website. So the website is called Jedmatch, mm-hmm. and they did a lot of flip-flopping in terms of allowing law enforcement to come in, not allowing law enforcement or only allowing them for certain things and then breaking their own rules to make an exception, you know, where a church organist in Utah had been brutally beat up, you know, it was like she was almost murdered, so they let they let the Utah police use their database because, you know, and it was an act of criminal. So it's very controversial. We have to get the informed consent of people that we ask to test. You know, if we're asking them to test at those places 
or to transfer their DNA results into GEDmatch. And it also has, I think, impacted how many people are willing to test. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, is there, are there, there are, I'm assuming cases or many cases where law enforcement can force people to test. How, how does that process work? Right. It's going to vary state by state in terms of collecting DNA. So for example, in Wisconsin, they're collecting DNA from misdemeanors and felon. So, you know, they're into, they're in the police database for these cases where they're using the genetic genealogy. Typically what they do once they've narrowed down a pool of suspects to one or a couple of people is they're collecting samples from waste. So for example, the cigarette butt that gets thrown out the car window, you know, the guy takes off, they pick up the cigarette butt and then they extract DNA from that. Mm -hmm. So they don't need any, they they don't need any legal uh, authority to do that. But what, what if they suspect someone of a crime and they want to say, Hey, we, we need a sample of your DNA to see if you are innocent or guilty of this crime. Is there, what, what's the standard on that? I don't know the details, but what I've learned from TV is it, it sounds like they, they can ask people and I'm not sure what degree of ask or requirement there is. I just, I've seen where they'll say like, well, we've swabbed a hundred people or we've swabbed 500 people. You know, so somehow, and swabbing to me means they're they're taking the cheek swab and then they're extracting DNA and comparing it to the crime scene sample. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I always like to point out about the use of genetic genealogy and law enforcement is when we're using that tool, we're not saying, well, we, I found these 500 people, you better go swab them. Instead, it's, you know, I found a family of brothers, or I found this one man, or I found these two brothers and this cousin, you know, it's like, you can count them on one hand, the number of people that they're able to narrow it down to. And, you know, so there are far fewer people being accused of the crime. And also, typically, these are European people, you know, people of European descent. And that's because these genealogical databases are full of people from Northwest Europe. Mm-hmm. So if you've seen the genetic detective show, they're catching white criminals, suspects, I should say. You know, we have seen a jury decision convicting a man of a double murder and a rape out in Washington state. We've seen an exoneration of one man and the arrest of another man in the Angie Dodge case. You know, so you mentioned that some people are being acquitted or freed and that, that has happened last mm-hmm. summer. Well, like, like uh, you know, the, what's the movie that's out right now? Just Mercy is, uh, you know, covers that topic pretty extensively. Have you seen that? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah. And that, that again brings up, you know, all, all these interesting choices around the, around the industry that you're in. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure uh, in your case, you know, you've seen a lot more positive outcomes uh, um, in, in the work you do, but I, I'm also sure that like in what we're talking about related to crime, you know, there's, there's some real serious dilemmas that people have to consider. So Mary, in, 
in closing, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners that we haven't covered, whether it's about DNA or around really, you know, keeping in the theme of the show, the choices that you've had to make around being in business or, and in this particular business and dealing with the sensitive subject matter that you are uh, confronted with? One thing I'd like to add is that when we're asking our cousins or our aunts and uncles or our grandparents to do DNA testing to help us and our genealogy, it's really important that when you're asking them to do that test, mm-hmm. to, to say, okay, you know, there's, I've heard that sometimes family secrets can be uncovered. Sometimes there are surprises. How would you like me to handle that? You know, if, if that person is the person who's receiving the results. Yeah, just so literally just coming from the question of curiosity and making sure you're not just following what you think is the right protocol, but checking in with the client to see how they want this received or delivered or limited in some way, possibly, uh, and respecting that. Right. For the client work I do, and then also for the hobbyist. You know, a lot of people do DNA testing. They've heard it's going to solve all of their family brick walls. They're, mm. they're going to, you know, figure out where their, their family comes from. And oftentimes we're asking our relatives to test. So in that situation, of course, I would say to, to ask them up front, because otherwise, if you're the one that got the results and you see that their dad's not their biological dad, and then you go back to them and you say, oh, by the way, did you want to know if something comes up? They're going to know that something's not right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, first of all, Mary, thank you. This is a fascinating subject. I appreciate you being on the show. We, we've covered a lot, of, a lot of ground about a lot of different ways that this information is used. And, and um, uh, I'm glad that you're someone who's in, the, in this industry because it sounds like you have a true you know, sensitivity to some of the, the, the choices that need to be uh, made in a sensitive way. Um, so this has been another episode of Clear Choices. Thank you so much for being here. And once again, I want to uh, remind you to uh, reach out to me if you have any questions about the coaching services that we provide here at Clear Choices. You can contact us at clearchoices.live or contact me directly at rob at robeigner.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.